Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennard, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. The name Crawford is synonymous with New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. The brand that bears Erica Crawford's husband's name is now owned by a large corporation and the non-compete agreement which was part of the sale has expired. Since then, Erica and her husband Kim have started a new brand, literally from the ground up. Where their former label owned no vineyard property, their new label, Love Block, is entirely estate-grown on what was formerly a sheep ranch. I met with Eric Crawford to talk about the differences between running a massive brand and a small production winery, and of course to taste some delicious wines. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditer.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditer.com. Hi, welcome to The Honest Pour. I'm John Lennart. Joining me today is Erica Crawford of Love Block from New Zealand. Welcome to the show. Hi there, John. How did you get into wine? Long story and a long time ago, of course. Um, my background's in medical science, so I did a lot of research in the looking at the genesis of ventricular arrhythmias, which sounds very highfalutin, but essentially a heart attack. Sure. And um, then met a boy who was working at a winery in South Africa, and he was from New Zealand. And, you know, he told me on the first day he met me, he's going to marry me, and I told him not to be stupid. <laughs> anyway, three years later, we did. And that was some 26 years ago, and I'm still in New Zealand. So you married into the wine business. I, uh, yeah, he was... Um, his background is studies a BC and then a graduate diploma of enology, which was really all there was at the time, you know, in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. So we went through that. And then I worked in, um, I worked for a German diagnostics company when I got to New Zealand, which really gave me the opportunity to learn business principles, you know, what's a and l and, and, and that sort of stuff. So we then the had, business side of the wine yeah, business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we then had two babies in very short succession, thirteen months apart. Oh God bless! And that really gave um, gave us the 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 heave ho to do the Kim Crawford brand. Sure. Yeah. So Kim's your husband, and that brand is known globally. Clearly, you no longer a part of that brand. No, no, we're not. We sold that to um, Constellation Brands um, and left some 10 years ago. Sure. And when you, when you left there, you, you sort of flipped the script. Kim Crawford, Sauvignon Blanc, the brand, uh, was a big, large production, conventionally farmed wine. How did you flip the script with Love Block, and why did you do that? Well, if we just go back 20 years, um, and when we started Kim Crawford, you know, a lot of New Zealand producers went to the UK. We came to the US simply because we had two little babies and we didn't have that much money. We started that brand on $20,000 really? between the two of us. Yeah. You know, we sold as much in those days as much Merlot and Riesling and Anak Chardonnay as we sold Sauvignon. I'm talking 1998, 1990. I guess, yeah, around about 2000. And two things happened. We put screw caps on wine, and that led to a lot of media chatter, you know, so there was a lot of discussion generated around that. The most important thing that happened was in 2003, when Lord of the Rings came out, stormed on the scene. And what they did was to take New Zealand into the general consciousness of the American consumer. And, and by then, 
Kim Crawford had really a good distribution. So when it took off, we were ready to go. Oh, so just right place, right time, so huh? Right place. Well, and I look, I'd like to think a lot of hard work. Well, clearly, <laughs> clearly. But also, um, it established the style for the classic New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc here in the US, particularly. The big aromatics of grapefruit and cut grass and capsicum, what do you call it? Um, bell pepper. Bell pepper. Yeah. Yep, green bell so pepper. So sort of almost more, more towards the vegetable basket right yeah yet with sort of that tropical fruit backbone yeah and so what we do now is completely different so also remember before we didn't really own any vineyards that's why we called the Kim Crawford because we didn't have a road or a peak or a valley or you know or (laughs) a bay so we now own all the vineyards so it's all estate grown what we don't need we sell to other people um we our focus is firmly on sustainability and organic farming, and um, and yeah, the grapes, the the wines expressed quite differently as a result of the grape growing, as a result of the wine making, and I guess also as you know, philosophically, um, we're just not where we were before. Organics is quite important to you. Tell me why. Quite important. I mean, for me, it sort of happened about fifteen years ago when I was in a motor car crash. And my heart presented like a 55-year-old stressed-out businessman, the cardiologist said. And I just started cleaning up my life, you know. I first thing that went was Diet Coke, and my headaches went. And then I just started learning more about food labels and reading more about additives and preservatives, etc., colorants. So I just started, slowly but surely just started cutting out. And it wasn't a dramatic decision. It just happened. Then I looked at skincare and try to change as much as I possibly could to natural skincare, And then how we clean the house, because that's a real, you know, they use a <laughs> It's a chemical, chemical nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we were ready to do this, it was just a logical step. Because you certainly don't do this for profit or, you know, it's a market position we're going to go No, you now. lose a lot of money once you go organic. <laughs> you do, you definitely initially do, because your crop levels are lower. Right. And it takes about 10, what, We've done it for 10 years now, and I can tell you in the last two years, the vines have just really started performing really well. Mm. Yeah. So you have you have the non-compete agreement where you weren't allowed to make wine, but it didn't impede you from growing grapes. Correct. How did you find the land where you're growing your grapes? We already had a place um, uh, not far from the now Love Block Farm which we bought in 2002 to supply the Kim Crawford brand with Pinot Noir because no one wanted to grow Pinot Noir. It just doesn't give you a good return as a grower. Sure. Um, So we had that vineyard. And then this, they were all part of an old sheep station, very large South Island sheep station. And the last parcel that came available is right up on the hills, about 750 feet up, looking south over this Awateri Valley. And it's really beautiful so that just stole my heart and you know we were 10 feet tall we were bulletproof we just sold that brand it was very successful and we thought we could change the world well we came down with a thud with some things but what we did do up there was to you know it's really extreme grape growing we're growing grapes in places where people haven't grown grapes before and we also experimented with varietals that um, we haven't planted before so we've learned a lot, you know, it hasn't always worked up there on the hills, but um, the stuff that does work gives you incredibly good or different flavor profile. Hmm. How much land do you own and exactly where? 
So we farm under under grape. Um, we have approximately two hundred and forty acres, of which uh, just over two hundred is in Marlborough, and then twenty is in Central Otago. There's some Central Otago yeah. space as well. Yeah. For Pinot Noir, I'm assuming. Pinot Noir, yeah. 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 That's some um, Pinot you know, Noir heaven there. It's, it's really too difficult to sell Pinot Noir from Marlborough and from Central Otago in the same market. People get confused. Hmm. What are spe- what's special about the places where you're planting? What, 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 what's the terroir? So in Marlborough, it's uh, mostly on the valley floor. So that gives you, you know, alluvial um, sandy loams, which is what Marlborough is known for. And up on the hill is more uh, clay-based soil, very clay-based. So we've done a lot of soil work, obviously due to organics at the bottom, as well as the top of the hill. And as that structure improves and the soil biota improves, we see, um, you know, the vines just really performing well. Hmm. And what what grapes are you growing? What varietals are you bottling? Uh, Sauvignon Blanc is obviously the bulk of our production. We grow a lot of Pinot Gris, which is very popular in Australia, New Zealand, UK. And we grow Pinot Noir, but we also grow uh, Riesling, we grow Gravestomina, we grow... Um, we had a ex- real experimental block where we grew Arnais, oh, wow. Sauvignon Gris, Pinot Blanc, um, Tempranillo. Just to see how things Pinot, would yeah, take. Huh? What would grow and what wouldn't. And the funny thing is what grows in those extreme conditions is... Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Blanc, um, Moscato grew quite well up on the hill as well. Chenin Blanc, the Blancs, yeah. That's interesting. So now we know the area much better. So we now know where the soil fertility is better, where we can plant and whatnot. So now we're in the throes of going into much smaller little blocks. So I'm talking three to four uh, hectares Mm -hmm. as opposed to 20 per block, you know, per vineyard. How much wine are you making? At the moment, um, we've been doing it for five years now. We had about twenty-four thousand cases. Okay, which so is really quite still quite compared small. to where you were, this is um, <laughs> microscopic yeah. production. Yeah, yeah, tiny, tiny. What was that change like? What was that change like from going from making this huge, virtually a bulk wine to uh, these little tiny blocks of three acres? Well, the, the grape growing is really exciting, and the winemaking is a lot. E- more difficult and and more easy but the most difficult thing was just estimating your numbers you know and dialing back the numbers when we were so sure we could sell this in year one of course it didn't happen because life is not like that and and you know coming back the second time around it's hard work and a lot of the same principles still count you know relationships matter absolutely absolutely just have to be there and it takes time do you fight any confusion with your name and the brands in the marketplace? Um, I'm sure some people may find it a little bit confusing, but the two wines are so different, you know. If you, Just in terms of wine style, in terms of primarily where it's sold, um, price point. So they, don't, they compete, but they don't really compete. And it's, it seems that maybe... Your first brand was about building something to lead you to do what you wanted to love and what was really more important to you. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, it was so funny. We moved house three years ago and I found boxes of old plans and 
and things. And um, in this was an, an old desk pad, which we had, you know, we still used best desk pads in the 80s, and which that was pretty much laid out just simply. We always knew we had an exit. Yeah. It just happened a bit quicker. We thought it would happen around about year 15 to 20. It happened at year seven, eight, nine. Yeah. Wow, that quickly, huh? Yeah, it was that quick. Yeah. And what's the plan for Love Black? Is this really the end of the road, or not end of the road, but is this the beginning of the last chapter? Or Certainly for us too. Um, our son is in the end, so our son's qualified, and he's doing the yards working for other people now. So he's done, he's worked in the warehouse, he's done his time in the vineyards, he's now working in retail for a little before the next vintage starts. Um, so he will come into the business, but only when he's 30 years old. 30? Yeah, I think you've got to learn other people's systems and how other people work before you take on your parents' bad habits. Sure. No, that's fair. <laughs> yes. that, that, yeah, that's, yeah. that's really fair. And that's an interesting take. Um, that would be considered unusual in America, for sure. I don't know. I've, I've watched other families. We've watched other families, um, you know, with intergenerational businesses. And... Certainly the Tolato family that we work with here in Chicago, their kids work for other people before they come into the business, that's for sure. Yeah. You're imported in the U.S. Is the wine fairly available, even though it's a small production throughout the country? Yes. It's, um, well, you know, it's not in the big retail in the big Right, you don't have enough region, for those. But yeah, it's most certainly in stores like, it's in stores like Whole Foods and in, in small independents. I think it's Back and Jewel Osco. Um so it's folks around the country Binnies. can get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Big Binnie's is a large retailer in yeah. the Chicago area. So yeah, probably Total Wine, maybe? It's in Total. It's in Plum Market. Okay, good. It's in Wegmans. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. So, so, yeah, it's fairly up. accessible. Yeah, and, and, you know, into that sort of gourmet grocery category. Terrific. Mm. And, of course, in restaurants. That's where most of the wine is sold. So, should we taste some wine? Yeah. What do we have first? So, we're going to start with Pinot Gris today. And um, I'm not sure that people see a lot of New Zealand Pinot Gris around. Um, I think there are, there are a few brands that bring it out. But as Oregon um, gets more and more available, you know, and people get to know Pinot Gris as, as opposed to Pinot Grigio more, we definitely have seen the um, this popularity of this, of this varietal increase mm -hmm. so it's really pretty color super very bright but yet delicate in color yeah so the the, the vintage on this is 2016 okay um it was a it was pretty good vintage in marlborough great we we now keep the wine in bottles a little longer before we release them um, and this this for me is just the perfect food wine because it sits so nicely under food and you get that those lovely flavors of prosciutto wrapped melon. Yeah, well, uh, there's definitely melon on the nose. Yeah, and melon and a, a good bit of uh, like uh, like a sweet spice. Mm. And, and nice minerality, too, to the nose. Kind of like a dusty... Top of the, top of the hill, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, I don't know if you know what a prickly pear is. Mm -hmm. Always tastes like prickly pear to me. So the palate's pretty intense. So you see, philosophically, we have quite a different approach to these... To these wines, and I'll talk to that more when we look at the Sauvignon, but it's more 
palette focus, texture, and, and mouthfeel focus as opposed to big aromatics. Right. It's definitely uh, more yeah. restrained than a big, what someone might expect as yeah. a typical. So the difficulty with Pinot Gris, of course, is the sugar alcohol tightrope. Mm-hmm. Because generally, you know, you assume you've got to pick it at about 23, 24 bricks. But then you sit with these high alcohols. So if you want to make a dry Pinot Gris, you have really high alcohols. And if you make, you want to keep your alcohols under control, then it's too cloyingly sweet. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the type of Well, there's no sweetness to this at all. What we're finding, and I think more of us are finding this, as the vines are getting a little older, and but primarily if the vines are stressed, they get physiological ripeness quicker than they get high, the, the, you know, the high. Just breaks. as the wine ages, that's what happens. Yeah, and, but also it's stress is really important. So we first started noticing on the um, organic vineyards. And also then where it stresses on the top of the hill. Other vineyards where it's um, managed sustainably and they're not that stressed, you don't have that yet. But the top of the hill, is it, is it a very steep hill? Is it a shallow grade? It is not, uh, once you're up there, it's not that steep. There is probably... Not like German steep. No, not (laughs) like German steep, no. But um, it certainly gives you, there's a wind that comes through there from Antarctica and it's really, really cold. Mm-hmm. And it blows at 110 kilometers at least for four days a week. So these berries are really small. Oh wow! Very small and very very cold, but it does give us that mineralic expression. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, that's definitely there, and it's mm. it's on the finish as well. What's next? Then, of course, we go to the the absolute. Um, I think the, the one thing that God has given New Zealand is Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> Because it's just, uh, it just. I think if you mess up Sauvignon Blanc, it, then you really got to look at yourself. Uh, because it is a wonderful grape. It's so resilient. It, you know, it self-corrects in the bottle. And we've seen many vintages where you think this is not going to be good, but it self-corrects in the bottle. Really? And it really is just an amazing grape, yeah. So the biggest difference you'll note with this, what we're doing here with Love Block, as opposed to classic uh, Marlboro style, which is the big aromatics, you know, you talk, as I say, you still grapefruit, capsicum, yep. grass. Here you'll see the, the nose is a lot more constrained. And the first thing that'll hit you is canned peach. Now, my mother used to make... Oh my gosh, you're absolutely right. My mother used to make, she used to can peaches in summer in South Africa, those what we call yellow cling peaches. Mm-hmm. And it's for me, it's just like that. And, of course, pineapple here. So in our little corner of um, the valley, we are incidentally some of the older grape growers in, in the area because we couldn't afford to buy where all the rock stars were, you know, so we had to go to the poor man's valley. Okay. And now it's um, now it's giving us fantastic flavors. So, so it's canned peach, pineapple, white stone fruit, and then, of course, in the back it is Sauvignon Blanc. You're going to get that lovely flush of herbs, and for me it's cilantro. Cilantro, coriander. Yes, cilantro, coriander, yeah. Yeah, and, and lemon. So it's and a diff- bit of like yellow flowers I'm getting too. Yeah, dried yellow flowers, yeah. yeah. But you know, John, this, this project has really made me fall in love with the grape again. I, I'm not one that's particularly in love with the really big flavors. I like the wine to be a little bit more 
sophi- you know, like, yeah, like sophisticated, sophisticated is a fair word. Yeah. That's a fair word. Um, and I like I like palette I like palette weight. How long have you been making the sub block under For the this, block? Uh, five years. Five years. Yeah. Going back and visiting those older vintages, how 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 are they how are they doing? You know, one of the arguments, particularly. Regarding New Zealand Sauv Blanc, is as it gets older, it turns into just canned asparagus and bleh. I tend to strongly disagree with that. Okay. Again, when we moved house, we found all these old 2004 Sauvignon Blancs that we made. Mm-hmm. And they are absolutely gorgeous. They've got flavors of, um, sure, there's secondary flavor development um, of the fruit, the, the fruit flavored Uligus, lovely sweet fruit flavors coming out. I like that canned pea thing because it takes on a lovely sweet layer. And then it develops that, I don't know, you know, Margaret Rivers Chardonnay sort of thing that, that I really love too. And when they age, it's almost like they have an evaporation at the back palate. And this happens with the Sauvignons too. So don't be scared of age on Sauvignon. It really does change. Yeah. Um, so the 12 vintage was huge. You know, it was very late and very cool. So those methoxypyrazines, which is the thing that gives us those big green flavors, mm-hmm. was very, very high. So that was quite challenging for people after a year in a bottle. What's the vintage on the salt block? 17. This is 17. Yeah. So we're just bottling 18 next week. Okay. We'd like, we thought we were going to hang out for another two months, but it's going a little bit better than we expected. You know, so the sales coming through much quicker. So that's what I want to say. You know, we I, I sort of feel we we were part of the group that established that classic Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc. I mean certainly Kim Cool. Yeah, that's it's the yeah. hallmark. And, and and so some people have been drinking with, with us for twenty years and so, you know, um palates develop. A little bit like Remember those Californian Chardonnays 20 years ago? Those big, awful, mellow, sleazy. Huge, mellow, everything. And I think Sauvignon Blanc is starting to move in that direction where people are moving away from, starting to, us old, the old guard, moving away from the zippy green flavors and trying to to harness maybe the more tropical flavors Mm -hmm. and and evolve the style, you know? One of the things I love about this Sauvignon Blanc is there's beautiful structure. It's really elegant. It's not just about green or it's not just about tropical fruit. There, there's, there's like you said, that beautiful canned peach, but there's this beautiful structure to the whole wine and beautiful acidity too. And huge, I think it makes it a great huge food acidity. wine. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I can tell you also what we see in the change now. So we've been practicing organics for 10 years and most of this wine comes from organic vineyards. So... What we're seeing, obviously, the soil has changed quite a lot. But James Milton, who's the father of biodynamics and organics in New Zealand, he always tells me that you owe the earth 10 years of gratitude. And then you, st- and I've seen it with other people, then you start seeing sort of an ethereal texture developing in the wine. And I think we're sort of at the start of that now. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Are you practicing biodynamics at all? Some of the, some of the preps we use, yeah. You know, for instance... Well, Lovebrook Farm is quite special to me. You know, that's my project. So we don't only grow grapes. It's a very big property. And so um, probably only about 30% of the whole property is under grapes. Good. 
because there's such a lot of hillside, we initially just got cattle to keep that short okay. as a fire risk. And then I looked at it one day and I said to Kim, I think we can do lock block organic grass-fed beef. So then we changed the, the herd out to all Angus. All the uh, grazing paddocks are certified organic. So it's a certified organic farm. All the grazing paddocks are certified. And the last of the cattle who were in, which were imported are going this year. So they've got to be born on the property to start the conversion process. Fair. So next year we'll start the conversion process. Okay. And, I mean, other things that we do. So it's in a closed nutrient loop. So everything comes off the farm, goes back into the farm. Do you, right? do you have chickens too? We have chickens. So then you got the chickens and the worms and the cows. And, and that goes to the produce. and Yeah. And, and, and so we do that own compost. We've got a fairly large facility of um, compost making, which instead of using commercial fertilizer, we use that. And we use things like sea kelp and, you know, stuff like that to increase the the, the biota and the balance of the soil. So from there, obviously you get leachate as the compost drains. That then gets pumped through um, the double helix because yeah, in so biodynamics, right. any fluid that's quiet is dead. And then it gets sprayed back onto the compost. Mm-hmm. I think uh, we must be some of the only people in the world get excited about compost. But anyway, <laughs> it's also... Every year, one of the grazing paddocks goes into a summer fallow, so it doesn't get touched. So we're really just looking at at the basis of everything is the soil. And then, of course, we get the sheep in and we get the cattle in to mow between the rows and we we use, um, we grow, cow, you know, organic vineyards always look a bit scruffy. So this label here is an, a dandelion flower and they're the first, this is the first weed to grow. And so, yeah, so that's that's what we... And we have a big vegetable garden, my last point. We have a big vegetable garden. So everybody works there. So that's our staff of about 10. And the guys who come to prune or, the you know, the guy who comes to fix the tractor or, you know, the guy who comes to read the electricity meter, they all can take vegetables from oh, the garden. Fabulous. So it's a little collie or, you know, something like that. So back to biodiversity. Yeah, so this is my dream job. Given that you, you, you planted the initial grapes on this land, there was, mm. you said a sheep farm before? Mm. Yeah. Mm. How have you seen your vines mature and change throughout this closed-loop implementation? Mm. The most important thing in those adverse growing conditions is water. And initially, we didn't give them enough water. And so that's one of the things... But composting definitely helps because the soil on top of the hill is quite chal- again quite challenging. But um, so it's really important. So you have the uh, Pinot Gris on top of the hill. We have Pinot Gris on the valley floor, on top of the hill. We oh, you do both. Sauvignon Blanc on the valley floor, mainly on the valley floor, on top of the hill. Uh, Pinot Noir obviously comes from somewhere Different else. Different vineyard. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Why don't we try the Pinot Noir? What's, what, tell Let's me about the Pinot do Noir. That. Let's do that. So this is a little vineyard, again, grazing land that we bought in central Otago. Now, you have to understand that growing grapes in central Otago is like growing grapes in Aspen. It's at elevation. It's surrounded by the southern Alps. You know where they made Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings and those yep. rising peaks. Um, and so it snows a lot. 
So it's it is again quite quite adverse growing conditions. But that's where uh, probably about twenty five years ago, this guy called Alan Brady experimented and planted planted Pinot Noir there, and it's doing really well. Um, we're in a warmer part of the area outside a little town called Cromwell, which is well known for its apricots, peaches, and so on. Um, so it's warmer. So while we have frost fans and frost protection, we've actually never had snow on the valley on the floor. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is only twenty acres. Oh. We plant the five. We plant five clones there, so you'll get the little whiffs of lilac from seven seven seven, and then you get nice structure from pomade and this New Zealand clone called Abel. It. I love the way Pinot Noir expresses earth, and this mm. wine definitely expresses mm. earth. Like you said, there's lilac in there, but Forest but it's, it's it's yeah. I feel like Forest I scooped floor. up a hand of dirt mm. and put it right in my nose. Yeah, it's really amazing because you know with with I speak a lot about viticulture and grape growing because that's my my major interest. But for Kim to make these wines, you know, he's a man who likes to manipulate wine, and he loves making those big wines. So for him to do this is quite a challenge, you know. It's basically going hands off. Anyway, I can't claim any kudos for this little vineyard because he's looking after this one. Mm-hmm. And but you'll, you'll notice that the wine is not. Um, this, it's got a light oak regime, so fifty percent of the wine goes into oak barrels to age, old and mainly old and newer, and the fifty percent stays in stainless steel, so it's to try and preserve some of the fruit. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. The oak is, the oak is there. You can tell it's. It's definitely giving there. The, yeah. Definitely there. Not not overly so though. But not, not overly like, so because it's quite easy to do. Yo, quite. You know, for me, I've never been to the US um, at Thanksgiving, and I really would love to do it one year. But it, this just screams Thanksgiving, doesn't it? Pinot Noir for sure. You're welcome at my Thanksgiving table anytime oh, you're here. Oh, thank you. I may take you up on that. <laughs> um, but the other night I was in D.C. and we had the most wonderful trapped. Mm-hmm. So it covered everything on that table from, it was called, the place was called a, the, a Rake's Progress and it's the, at the Line Hotel. It was absolutely astounding. It was roast chicken. Um, this this and roast chicken is a special thing, trout, I imagine. The trout and then there was, um, then it was beef. Mm-hmm. And my God, amazing! It just covered the spectrum. So for me, this is the white wine drinkers' red wine, and it's got the same workability that Sauvignon Blanc has. Without a doubt, you could serve this yeah. with such a such a spectrum of everything from fishy fish to beef. Mm-hmm. Oh, but I'll tell you another story now. I was once we were, we were doing a show, and um, a chef from the Culinary Institute in California showed me how the lemon trick on steak. Was, you know, we had a very flimsy little Pinot Noir and a big steak, and he said, "Don't worry, Mike." He said, "Don't worry." So he made people taste steak without lemon on. Squeeze a bit of lemon on. Well, obviously with the wine before. Yep. Squeeze the lemon on. Taste the steak with the wine, and the acidity ties the big flavors to the yeah, wine. For it's sure. amazing. Yeah, it's much like salt. Where it much just... like salt. Yeah. Yes. Oh, Erica Crawford of Love Block. Thank you so much for your time. Your your wines are delicious. They're attainable, which is nice. And I just loved having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I apologize for rambling, but I do get a bit enthusiastic. 
Oh, clearly you should be. <laughs> Thank you. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thank you.